Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But on the Bob phone from Belfast, he's our guest, podcaster Stephen Cockcroft. Roll on, John. Roll through the rain and snow. Take the right-hand road and go where the buffalo roam. They'll trap you in an ambush for you know. Too late now to sail back home. Shine your light. Move it on. You burn so bright. Roll on, John. Tiger, tiger, burning bright. I pray the Lord my soul to keep in the forest of the night. Cover him over and let him sleep. Shine your light. Move it on. You burn so bright. Roll on, John. Wow. That's the first time anyone's chosen that. Brave, brave choice. Yes. Well, <laughs> but I can see maybe where you're going with this. Uh, why did you choose it? Well, I have to say it's not my favorite Bob Dylan song. Uh, it's not a song I play very much. It's not even a song I like particularly, but it's a song that fascinates me. I'm intrigued by that relationship that Dylan had with the Beatles and with Lennon in particular, and also the notion that he waited until 2012 to write this song. The lyric is very odd. It's very gauche in places where he's sort of quoting a day in the life and he's quoting uh, Come Together. There's non sequiturs. There's that terrible line about down in the quarry with the quarry man. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, and I just have never quite been able to get my head around it. But but increasingly, it's a song that I'm just fascinated by. And I think it works on the page quite well, perhaps better than the recorded version. I don't know. They shot him in the back and down he went. Yeah. Uh, does that it's work very well? similar to Murder Most Foul. I mean, we can. I, I think it now... At the yes. time, it seemed like it stuck out like a sore thumb. There was nothing quite else there. But but actually, he's written quite a lot of sort of ghost songs about heroes. I mean, Lenny Bruce is another one. Yes. But it almost makes me want to say that it's part of a, of a tradition that he wants to tap into, and he's doing it not ironically exactly, but knowingly. I don't know. That's my take on it. I think I've come, you know, initially it was presented, you know, the reviews, and they were saying, oh, this is a song he's written about. John Lennon and he his friendship with John Lennon and they had this relationship and but I don't think it is that I think it's about the myth I think it's about the legend you know it's like Lenny Bruce or Joey or mm-hmm. it's not about the person and not about the individual because I don't think they had a relationship particularly I, I think you could count on the fingers of one hand the number of times they actually met which surprises me yeah, he's not particularly. I mean, when you, that footage from the from the limo in May '66, then neither of them is particularly relaxed in each other's company, are they? Oh, they're absolutely both. I, I think uh, Lennon said that. Well, first of all, he said that they were blasted out of their heads on. I think he said skag. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've never seen anyone so off their face on a, a video like Bob Dylan was that night, and he keeps threatening to throw up. But <laughs> as you say, they're they're. But, but I think John was quite obsessed with him um, I, I, over the years. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, I think, I think, uh, and weirdly for Lennon, you know, Lennon's not someone that, you know, lavishes praise, particularly on his peer group, particularly, but he he was pretty consistent, certainly in the 60s, acknowledging the influence of Dylan. I mean, he couldn't really hide it. You know, he had, you know, he bought the hat. He, he mm. was, uh, he, he uh, <laughs> you know, he was always praising Dylan. Whereas if you look at what Dylan says about Lennon or what Dylan says about the Beatles at the time, he's pretty faint or at least pretty sparing with, with his, uh, his prayers, you know, Mm. um, it's a weird relationship. And I think, 
it's interesting that I think they just they never could have been friends. I don't think they ever could have had that relationship. They dance around each other. Yeah, they're um, too much alike. I mean, they're, they're, yeah, I think they're too much alike. And um, Lennon in Dylan's presence, I think, has that defensiveness. You know, this thing where Lennon says, you know, I, I can't decide if I'm a genius or uh, I'm an idiot. You know, half the time I think I'm a genius. And I think his relationship with Dylan sort of throws that into pretty stark relief. And yet Dylan is somebody that he mentions, I think, three or four times in different songs. You know, Give Peace a Chance and God and Your Blues. Mm. Dylan's name mm. crops up. But it takes until 2012 for Dylan to sort of repay that uh, that back. It's a really good point. And that his kind of, uh, his awkwardness around the whole fourth time around Norwegian Wood thing as well. The yeah. Lennon seems quite threatened by Dylan's reaction, if, it, if indeed it was yeah, what I mean, it was appointed. Dylan plays it to him. You know, he actually plays it to him uh, in 66 and yeah. says, what do you think? And Lennon says, I don't like it. And right. it, Lennon admits to being completely paranoid. And this is something that comes up again and again in interviews in 66, 68, 1970. He talks about being paranoid about Dylan. And one of the things that I think is that the lyric of Norwegian Wood, that's just a Dylan lyric. You know, you're yeah. sitting, I'm sitting on a rug, biding my time, drinking her wine. That's something straight off Blonde on Blonde or yeah. Highway 61. That's a Dylan lyric, even the fact that it's wine and not scotch and coke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think for, for years I tried to work out what the, if, if it was fourth time around, what those four songs were. Because mm. Ian MacDonald says maybe Babies in Black. And I thought, no, that's, that's surely not one of them. Surely it's, I should have known better. I'm a loser. you got to hide your love away. Norwegian Wood, right? Yeah, I think yeah. so. I think so. Because I'm a loser. He wrote, I think, I'm a Loser before they recorded it, before they met him, right. before they actually met. So they, they were obsessively listening to Freewheeling. But even before they met him, they were obsessing about it. And uh, it, it was influencing the writing. You don't see that influence, I think, the other way, except that Bob goes out and gets a band. Mm. I do think that Norwegian Wood is a Dylan-inspired, but it is there is this sort of linear quality that the Beatles had, which is one of the reasons that they're, they were so hugely successful. And Norwegian Wood is a story that you can follow, whereas Fourth Time Around is a story that you deliberately can't follow. Like, I, it's full of fabulous imagery yes. uh, and, and fabulous, you know, use of language. But I'll be damned if I can figure, you know, they're, they're in, they're out, she throws them out, he comes back in. You know, you can't really follow it in a linear sort of way. And maybe what Dylan was doing was saying, now this, this is how you do it. <laughs> I, I, I think that's exactly it. I think, I think he's almost mocking mm. that sort of linear story in Norwegian Wood. You know, Norwegian Wood, it has jokes. It's got a punchline, but yep. it is a straightforward narrative. And I do think Fourth Time Around is mocking that slightly. So I think, I think Lennon was probably right to be slightly paranoid. <laughs> yeah. No, he wasn't being paranoid. He wasn't being <laughs> If they're paranoid. after you, you're that's, not. That's yeah. an irrational fear. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so what we haven't done for those people who uh, aren't aware is um, mention your podcast, Nothing Is Real, your podcast uh, that you do with your partner, Jason, um, podcast partner, Jason, uh, which is a podcast dedicated to the Beatles. And when I was first told about it by Luke, who, you know, you've known for quite a while now, 
I thought, oh, Jesus, a Beatles podcast. Yeah. I've got to listen to this thing. And I, I love it. I've become such a huge fan. To sort of get into it, I wanted to uh, thank you for uh, various things that I've learned, not least, and this is a bit of a coming back to uh, the Beatles and um, Bob. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, oh, it was when you were on the um, Word in Your Attic, the uh, David Hepworth, yep. Mark Ellen um, video fest, that you held up a copy of uh, Dreaming the Beatles by Rob Sheffield, yes. which I then went out and bought because uh, you recommended it very highly. And uh, and that's the one where I think Rob Sheffield invented the phrase, which has become a truism, I think, on this podcast, in the Beatles' divorce, George got custody of Bob. Yes, that's such a good phrase. Ooh. And it perfectly describes what happens. I do love that book. I know I know your co-presenter isn't a fan. But, <laughs> no, uh, I know. And that's that's good because we like a little, you know, <laughs> friction. <laughs> But and I was prepared to not like it because Luke and I often see eye to eye. But I I I read it with huge enthusiasm. Well, he's got very strong opinions, Rob Sheffield, doesn't he? And, yes, uh, uh, very, you know I don't always agree with his opinions, no, but, I, but you know you can respect a strongly held opinion, and um, he he does back it up, and he writes so well. You know he can turn a phrase, and I think mm. that phrase you know, just describes perfectly what happened. You know, you can see that relationship between George and Bob developing. And of course, George is going to be able to be sort of have that relationship with Dylan in a way that, uh, you know, Lennon can't because of that sort of dancing around each other. Do we know, was it it Harrison who brought Dylan into the Beatles circle? Was it his copy of Freewheeling that they all obsessed over? This is a matter of debate because I think John, Paul and George each at different times have taken credit for that. Um, (laughs) But what I can say is they seem to have acquired that copy of Freewheeling in Paris. Yeah. And there's a photograph of John and Paul opening a box of records that somebody has obviously bought for them. You know, the record company functionary has gone out to the shops and purchased this. And mm. Paul is actually holding up a copy of Freewheeling, literally as he's taking it out of the uh, out of the box. But I think Lennon is the one that probably is the one that proselytized most on behalf of Dylan in the early years. Uh, McCartney was interviewed by Sean Lennon for uh, sort of Lennon's 80th birthday if you heard that interview, and he mentions having, he actually says we had a Bob Dylan record before the Beatles, which obviously can't be right. So they all were on the Bob train, I think, from an early, early point. And then actually today it came up, and I'll just get this over with, uh, Serve Yourself, uh, John's yes. caustic comment on uh, Bob's born-again uh, Christianity. And uh, that was a, there was a, you know, he finally took the gloves off, maybe because he had been so sort of edgy and paranoid. I'm not sure how well that's known because I discovered it on the uh, Once Upon a Time uh, set that came out geez, yes. a long time ago now, right? But yeah. the one that uh, that I heard today was the a kind of a bluesy piano version, which I hadn't heard before, yeah. which isn't quite as vicious because the the one that I'd heard, with, which is a guitar-based version, is uh, in this thick Liverpool accent. <laughs> yep. And it's so funny. Yeah, the acoustic guitar version is scathing. Absolutely scathing. scathing. I think it first appeared on the Lennon Anthology box, which mm. I can never remember the dates of these things, but it was maybe late 90s. Um, yeah, that sounds about right. It, mm-hmm. it came out. But uh, you, you've got to wonder what Bob thought when he heard that you know well i wonder what um, he thought when he heard working class hero because that's not dissimilar to masters of war and that's yes. that scathing quality sorry obviously alexa thinks i'm talking to her and she can i'm going to, have to turn her off alexa. how annoying <laughs> we'll probably leave that in yeah because so the scathing quality that dylan 
had passed on to Lennon previously had not been directed at Dylan. No, and then suddenly to see that turned on yourself. I mean, it was something very interesting. I haven't read this book, and I'm not sure if I can even remember the name. I think it's called Lennon, Dylan, God and Marx, or Marx and God. It's by John Stewart. It's only recently come out, and um, he mentioned that Dylan went to visit Yoko within 24 or 48 hours of Lennon's death. What? I had never heard that mentioned before. And um, so I have this book on order. So I will. But it's it's an academic book. And he was making great play on the fact that, you know, it's all research. There's, you know, there's more footnotes than book and uh, everything is sourced. And I thought that's a fascinating little piece of information as well, if that's correct. That's true. Yeah. Um, Because I don't think they ever met after 1969. They met at the Isle of Wight concert. Yeah. And the next day, Dylan flew to Tittenhurst Park and spent the day with Lennon and George Harrison. And Lennon tried to get him to play piano on Cold Turkey. Wow. And he he said he wouldn't or he couldn't or I think Sarah was pregnant at the time and he made his excuses and left. But maybe singing, you know, playing piano on uh, Cold Turkey just wasn't his cup of tea. And I'm not aware that they met after that. Even though Lennon then moved to New York for the rest of his life and, and yeah. they never... And you think that's very odd. I mean, in 68, Lennon was saying, oh, I've sort of lost touch with Dylan, but, you know, if I'm in New York, he's the person I would want to go and see. But yet they're embracing the same sort of radical causes. Dylan writes, went with George Jackson, was that 71, 72? Yeah, 71. Lennon is writing Angela, about Angela Davis, and George Jackson and Angela Davis, they're connected through that whole whole mm. incident. Lennon is hanging out with Phil Oakes at one point on the John Sinclair mm. rally. Dylan is at the... Chile concert that Oaks organizes, but Lennon's not there. And the only point of contact, I think I'm right in saying, is that Dylan reached out to Lennon in December 1975 when Rolling Thunder came to Madison Square Garden. Right. Which we, think, oh, which is weird enough, the 8th of December. Why do I know that? But it, it was. It was that was the day yeah. they played. Yeah. And you think, you know, what would that have been like if Lennon had suddenly appeared? Um, well, talking to Madison Square Garden, so so um, Lennon didn't go to the concert for Bangladesh. No, I think I think he was out of the country. I think he had right. uh, left the country in a strop after George, <laughs> George said, uh, "No, I've got Bob Dylan, and I'm afraid Yoko uh, is not coming on stage with, um, okay, with Bob Dylan." God. But uh, so I think there was a bit of a a sort of a spat there, and uh, Lennon exited stage left or right. Mm. So just to go back to the very beginning, uh, which we always do, just to get a little background, you're, um, I believe, from Belfast. I am. Um, so born and bred in Belfast. And the next question is, how and when did Bob Dylan impact you? Well, yes, born and bred in Belfast. So uh, the chances of actually getting to see Bob Dylan in Belfast when I was a teenager when, and discovering were zero. But the first album I bought by Bob Dylan was Street Legal. Uh, in 1978. So I was 15. I, you know, I was a Beatles fan already. Dylan, I was vaguely aware of as a sort of contemporary. But Dylan was a chart top 20 singles artist in the UK in 1978. You know, Baby Stop Crying was a hit single. So he was a contemporary artist. And uh, I remember hearing that single and thinking, this is the guy, this is the guy that sings Subterranean Homesick Blues. This is the same and I rushed out to buy that album. And I rem- I have this theory that the first album that you buy by someone or the first album that you hear is most likely 
going to stay as your favourite album. And I think Street Legal is right up there for me with his best work because it was sort of my entry point. And uh, then Budokan, which I have a kind of fondness for, maybe not the reggae versions or the flute fellows, <laughs> but, um, you know, Maggie's Farm. That's a great version of Maggie's Farm mm, uh, on that album. And then Slow Train. And those three albums, I bought them as they came out. And then I loved Slow Train, but I passed on Saved, I have to say. I think probably because of the cover. So then I started working back. Hard yeah. Rain, Desire, Blood on the Tracks. And then I sort of flipped into the 60s stuff, by which I mean the electric. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not, those first three or four albums are not on my radar, really, I'm afraid. Even even today. Um, nor me, actually. I, I, I tend to always want to begin at Subterranean Homesick Blues. Yeah. That's, I know I'm, I'm sort of going to obsessively talk about the Beatles, but the thing that absolutely leapt out of uh, bringing it all back home was 115th Dream, where he mentions the Beatles. Uh, where he says, you know, it's like, I ran right out and jumped into a cab. I jumped out the other door and this English man said, fab. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, that's Beatlemania he's talking about there. Yeah. And um, I kind of think by that stage, Bob knows what he wants and what he wants is to be the Beatles or at least to have that sort of popular adulation. You know, the weird Lennon wants the kind of uh, intellectual respect that Dylan has, the kind of coffee houses and the left-wing intellectuals, and that's what Lennon craves. But Dylan seems pretty early on in the first meeting to think, I could do with these hotel rooms and champagne and, uh, (laughs) you know, screaming fans. And uh, he sort of heads in that direction, realizes he has to have a band to do that. The story that I like about the first meeting is when they're all completely stoned. The phone is ringing constantly in the hotel and Dylan is answering the phone and going, it's Beatlemania here. It's Beatlemania <laughs> speaking. So even at that point, he's he's sort of jealous but mocking at the same time. Yeah. Um, you that, get that in Don't Look Back, don't you, when he's talking to the Time magazine reporter, when he says, you got a lot of nerve asking me a question like that. You, you asked the Beatles that? Yeah. You yes, can't quite yeah. decide whether he's me- he means that respectfully or derisively. Yeah, and I think I think it's that same sort of duality between that Lennon has. He sort of is paranoid but admiring at the same time. And Dylan, yeah. I think, you know, he he wants what the Beatles have. He wants that level of fame or that level of popularity, I think. But he's Bob Dylan, so he's not going to say that. He's the Joker. He's mocking (laughs) constantly. I'm assuming you've got uh, all sorts of other instances where the Beatles crossed over or were influenced by Dylan. Well, Kerry, no doubt you're a big fan of Ringo Starr's duet with Bob Dylan in 1987. Oh, I've got it as my ringtone. Yeah, you know. No, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. So, no, I only discovered this quite recently. In 1987, Ringo was kind of the depths of his uh, drinking problem. And he disappears. He goes off to uh, Nashville to record an album. And the producer is doing overdubs and says to the engineer, you know who we should get on this? We should get Bob Dylan and Joan Baez to come and sing on this. And uh, Joan Baez had the good sense to turn him down. But Bob (laughs) Bob turns up. Bob was probably, you know, a little bit um, far to the bottle at that at point. At the same well. time, yeah. yeah. They, um, so Bob apparently turns up. Uh, Ringo isn't present. Bob puts everybody out of the studio and sings a verse of this terrible song called I Wish I Knew Now, What I Knew Then, or What I... It's a terrible song. It's about the 60s, and it's this terrible song. And the engineer says, Bob just sang on D, 
you know that was the, that was the note and and um then after then then he sort of left and then they had to get a female uh, singer in to do a kind of harmony part and she said what do you want me to play and they said well just stay away from d because bob has that cover <laughs> um but i i i recommend you it, it's oh, terrible it's a terrible song but this is a conversation i've had with luke about a dylan song that i think mentions ringo don't fall apart on me tonight from what's that 82 83 yeah. yeah and there's a line in it where he sings what about that millionaire with the drumsticks in his pants? Yes. I he looked so baffled moment. and so bewildered when he played and we didn't dance. And I think that's got to be Ringo. You know what I think? Well, I've Maybe. never understood that line, I must say. Because so. it follows it follows Ringo's appearance on Heart of Mine in 81. And I think that's got to be Ringo Starr. Yeah, I'll buy that. When Bob appears on your podcast... That's the question I would like. That's the first question. That's the first question. It's in your pants, Bob. Yeah. yeah. What exactly yeah. were you referring Well, disguise to? it as a Ringo Starr podcast so he won't suspect a thing. Or, yeah. You know, is, it, yeah. Is, it, is, it, is it rolling ring? There's a logic to that, do you not think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think no, so. It's hard to quibble with that, yeah. really. This is where somebody's going to tweet in and uh, explain what that line is about. Yeah. I thought we were going to be talking about George the whole time. See, I'm I'm very much Team George on our podcast, so yeah. I, I was kind of staying away from that. But this is what I'm saying. I think George is a natural fit for Dylan because you know George quotes Dylan like scripture. Yeah, uh, you yeah. know he's all there's barely an interview, particularly in in the sort of late sixties and in the eighties, where he's not dropping a Dylan quote in as if mm. it's poetry or something from the Bible. It's very weird. And so the level of affection, I mean, that, that version of A Mummy You've Been On My Mind in um, mm, Get Back yeah. is just so beautifully done. It's so warm and affectionate. I think that was, that version in the Peter Jackson Get Back film is yeah. just wonderful because I've had that for years on a bootleg and you can barely hear the vocal. It's so low on off mic and Jackson has kind of punched that up. And I mean, I sighed out loud when they cut away <laughs> from it because it's it's only... <laughs> A partial clip gets it into the film, and that was the most disappointing aspect of that entire film. Well, doesn't he say just before, and I've, I've only watched it maybe one and a half times, so forgive me, but doesn't he say just before that the problem with the music we're doing is there's some other music out there that's better, yes. and we should be maybe covering some of that, and then he goes into a Dylan cover, doesn't he? Yes, and that's, I think, very telling. You know, mm. George has just come back from spending time in Woodstock, so he's absolutely infused with that basement spirit um that sort of collegiate spirit and dylan is treating him as an equal in a way that the get back film makes very clear he's not being treated as an equal by john or paul Mm. so he he comes back i think very enthusiastic about get back and you can see that draining away within the first two days oh god yeah it's painful Um, every morning when he says i've written a new song and mccarty's gone yeah great anyway yeah i was listening today to uh, i think guided by something i heard in your podcast to that um george album which i not listened to before the early takes yes volume one and there's a version of mommy you've been on my mind on that yeah and i i I listened to it i'd never heard that version before and i it was like he'd written it. I mean, it was so heartfelt. Yes. It's fabulous. It you is. Know. Jason uh, from the podcast, that's his favorite George Harrison album. And I think that may be his favorite track. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I mean, you, you would th- it's like he's inside Bob's 
you know, soul or something. I mean, it's just, I was really moved listening to it. I just was really moved by it. And I was, I was just really shocked that I'd never, um, I'd never heard it it's, before it, this morning. Yeah. It, Joe, he, he has done quite a few covers, Dylan covers that are kind of tucked away that were never released, you know, Abandoned Love and that, that kind of thing. So he doesn't, mm. he doesn't go for the obvious, the obvious cover, but I think that version is probably my favorite version of the song. I know other people have mm. covered it, and I, Dylan's version, but tons of people have. Yeah. Um, I just, yeah, he inhabits that song. Absolutely inhabits the song. And I think when I listen to George singing that, I think he's he's singing it to Dylan. You know, I think it's almost he makes the song about Dylan, the way he sings it. Yeah, and they say I'm I'd have you at any time is. Although it's credited as being co-written with mm. Bob, and I think Bob did the um, the middle eight or something, yeah. but it is again they they say it's George talking to Bob while he's in the room. Really. Yes, yes, and, the, yeah, and I think that's a very low key song to start an album with, particularly if it's your well, like album. Tears of Rage, I suppose, isn't it? It's it's, yeah. it's that kind of vibe to an opening of an album. Exactly, and I think what George is doing there is he is saying. I'm George Harrison. I've written a song with Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan is probably around that time the only person bigger than the Beatles or potentially bigger than the Beatles. And here I am. This is my solo album, straight out of the trap. I'm writing with Bob Dylan. I don't need John. I don't need Paul. He del- that is not a song to open an album with unless you want to let people know you've arrived. Well, didn't he say the same thing in the 80s when someone was asking him about writing with McCartney again? Yes. And it's yeah. around the yeah. Wilburys time and he, and he go on, I'll let you tell the story because you do it more accurately. He, someone says, you know, Paul would like to write with you. And um, he says, you know, well, we, we had that opportunity and I think times have moved on. And to be honest, I'm perfectly happy writing with Bob Dylan and Tom Petty. <laughs> <laughs> you, think, you think it's, yeah, it, it's <laughs> such a perfect, um, <laughs> you know, it's like Paul. It's so cold. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. Um, and I think Petty tells a story that in the Wilburys, sort of day one, Harrison says to Dylan, well, look, we know you're Bob Dylan, but we're just going to treat you like anybody else. And felt the need to sort of clear <laughs> the air. So despite the fact that they'd been friends for years, he felt he had to really, for everyone else's benefit, I suppose, say, look, you know, yeah, you are Bob Dylan, but... Um, and I know at one point somebody was interviewing him and said, you know, do you feel nervous, you know, writing and performing with Bob Dylan? And Harrison said, well, I don't know. Maybe Bob felt nervous writing and performing with me, <laughs> you know. So but I think they can get away with that. Another story that I saw quite recently on Twitter was about Bob Fest. Ooh, uh, yes, and um Apparently, Bob Fest started off as a benefit concert or that the intention was that it was going to be a benefit concert. And George signed up on the basis that this was you know, going to benefit some charity. And then he found out afterwards that this wasn't the case. And two things, I think, arise from that. that one, he said you can have one song for the album, not two. And then he sent T-shirts to Bob with Bob's face on it, covered by dollar sign. <laughs> And um, I think that, you know, only George Harrison, surely, could get away with that. Yeah, I agree. Um, That was his thing. He would send T-shirts to people. You know, he and Keith Richards apparently used to send each other T-shirts, even though they hadn't spoken for years. What about the Wilburys? Any other? I mean, I I happen to be listening to um, Working on a Guru again uh, today, which reminded me of the Wilburys. 
you know, it sort of foreshadows that kind of I think, silly fun. I, I think it is. It's it's a kind of proto Wilbury chin. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's right. I don't know what I mean. What do you think about the Wilburys? I are they a proper group or? Well, we'll just concentrate on the first album, presumably, because the second one, first, yeah. you know, just doesn't doesn't. Really well, work. I think your theory that um, that Harrison did it as a as a favor to get Dylan out of a rut is one that really really holds water. And if you look at it as the kind of the moment before Oh Mercy, when there is some kind of creative rebirth, it's really really interesting. He, he's surrounded by musicians who who aren't idolizing him exactly as you said. He's having fun. It's a very, very revitalizing process, I think, for him. I think so. I mean, I think it's easy to forget how much of a slump Bob was in, you know, around that time. And there's a fascinating interview that Harrison gives on a, a, a US uh, sort of syndicated radio show called Rockline. And uh, if you any interest in George Harrison, and that's an interview worth hearing. But he constantly name checks Dylan talks about how good he is, does the dropping lyrics in, and then he does a very sort of truncated version of Every Grain of Sand, if you've ever heard that, and wow. um, and then starts to complain about, there's too many lyrics, Bob, I can't, and he kind of gives up, but he's constantly sort of bolstering Bob's reputation. And I do think, uh, you know, there's this, this origin fable about the Wilburys that they all just happen to get together and I think it was much more calculated you know and then they go to Bob's garage and I think everybody else except Bob Dylan knew they were all in a band the moment they turned up that Dylan was perhaps the only one that didn't realize um <laughs> you know because they turn up Jeff Lynn has been to Dylan's house to kind of suss out the garage beforehand mm-hmm. has done a test recording with Dylan that's never I think seen the light of day and uh, then they all turn up and um you know, Dylan was saying, well, you know, how can we do this? Oh, well, I have half a song. Come on. Dylan fires up the barbecue and uh, suddenly the Wilburys are born. But I think, George, it was quite a calculated move. And I think it was kind of reaching out. And there is nothing more enjoyable than listening to Bob Dylan having fun. Oh, agreed. <laughs> yes. agreed. I mean, you're I right back to the basement yeah. tapes, don't you? When there's, when there's a creative drought period, just stick him in a room where no one's on the clock and there's a bunch of other musicians and no one has to do anything except just do what you feel like doing and stuff will come out. Yeah. You see the Beatles doing that in the Get Back movie. They yeah. just kind of start feeling around for what's happening and they, they you know, it's, if you have writer's block or you kind of have a creative block, well, what do you do? Well, you pick up the guitar and play an old song or you play an old folk song or you, you riff on something. And I think it's that. And I absolutely adore listening to Bob having fun. That's why, like uh, under the red sky, I think I think songs like "Cats in the Well" and stuff like that. I think those are just great. Mm. Or um, "Beyond Here Lies Nothing." Together through life, I know this is. I know I'm I'm venturing out on thin ice here, but um, that's an album I just I just enjoy. I, Bob mm. doesn't have to be uh, singing profound thoughts for me. I think I like Bob when he's kind of loose and ragged, and whether that's you know lyrically or whether it's with a band, you know, Hard Rain, that album. I just love that kind of ragged sound. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I love to hear Bob laugh, and I love to hear yeah. Bob having fun. In fact, I was listening to Under the Red Sky recently. George, of course, plays slide guitar um, yes. on that track, Under the Red Sky. But the thing I like about that particular couple of slide guitar breaks is they're not, they're nothing special. He's just noodling along. Um, and I like that because usually... Harrison's guitar breaks are forensically brilliant. 
they're planned in advance and they're really well thought out and they're very well played. But it's nice to hear him, you know, just messing around. Yeah. There's a casual aspect to that that mm. I think, I always think, you know, if you're going to build a third or fourth Wilburys album, that song is there that, because mm. it, it, it has a similar kind of laid back, quite relaxed vibe just the music never mind that never mind the lyric um, cheer um, down as well there's a, there's a exactly. genuinely spontaneous atmosphere in the closing minute or so of cheer down which is just great fun yeah i think there's it sounds it's maybe an odd thing to say but there's a lack of ambition in some of what george does that really appeals to me yeah. um <laughs> maybe it's because i'm similarly uh lacking in ambition but um <laughs> you, you know Jason won't speak to me if I, I start bashing Paul, but you know, there's there's a certain there's a sort of neediness about Paul that I don't like. Whereas George, I just he'd been in the Beatles. Well, he knew he'd been in the Beatles. What else did he he didn't have to do anything else? He had nothing. Well, left to whenever play. McCartney talks about Dylan, and he still does it to this day, mm. I always feel like someone who's name dropping at a party. Yes. Who is trying to kind of get you to think that he's he was a fan from day one, honestly. I don't know if that's fair of me, but that's the kind of vibe I get. I don't think that's unfair. I don't think that's unfair. <laughs> but then but then I would say that, wouldn't I? Um, no, I, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, McCartney talks about Dylan. He does talk about Dylan quite a bit. And something, I mean, to be fair, he's asked about Dylan. You know, there's an interview where he says, oh, I wish I were more like Bob Dylan. You know, he can kind of go out there and he changes the set list and he doesn't really mind yeah. whether he's giving the audience and he talks about going to see him in New York and not being able to identify what the songs were. But isn't that a passive aggressive way of him saying, I uh, wish I could be that shit. Yeah. I, I wish think I could be that useless and unprepared and unmelodic. And I think, I think there's an element of that. <laughs> and you kind of think, well, Paul, if you want to be spontaneous, be spontaneous because yeah, you know, yeah. you, you have the best back catalog. Maybe Dylan is the, the only, um, rival but you think you have the best back catalog in popular music you could go out there and play anything from that back catalog and you know the fans would lap it up but every single mccartney gig is the same the ad libs are the same i remember seeing him years ago in <laughs> vegas and he was playing a very nice piano solo piano version of you never give me your money and in the middle he starts saying on this is the bit where i can't remember the words and blah blah, blah. we all laughed until you know six months later that same ad lib appears on the lp that was recorded two weeks later you know so it was built in and yeah, uh, shambolic is not a word you would apply to paul mccartney no, no i mean he, no and again he was asked what bob dylan song do you think you would like to cover and he starts saying oh well he's such a good writer and you think well mr tambourine man that would be a good one to cover and i think there's no way paul mccartney could sing that song I'd like to hear Bob Dylan singing Rocky Raccoon. That would be, I could yeah. die happy. Well, I, knowing, knowing that I was coming on and, uh, you know, being a compulsive researcher, I was thinking, well, has Bob covered a McCartney song? Things you We know? Said yes. Today. Things We Said Today. Things I was going to ask you about that. Things We Said Today. But yeah. also, 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 The Long and Winding Road. What? Apparently he sang it in a concert in 1978. I haven't oh, heard it. I've looked. Oh, I can't man. find it. And you think that would have been the big band. That would have been... Yeah, flutes. Yeah, flute, that would have been oh, like a flute yeah. solo. Maybe I don't need to hear it. <laughs> I don't know, maybe. I'm um, fascinated. That's, that's intriguing. And apart from things, the only other connection I could get, they both have covered Froggy Went According. <laughs> <laughs> 
Maybe um, they should get together and do a duet. Maybe that's yeah, what we're yeah. together. Weirdly, yeah. weirdly, almost at, almost at the same time. Dylan's ninety one or ninety two, and McCartney's yeah. did it as a, a rehearsal for the unplugged thing around the same time. So yeah. it's weird that that was on their radar. What do the three of us make of things we said today? Just we we skipped it over, but I think it's really interesting mm. that Bob did a full scale, um, you know, studio version, not a messing around at a sound check yeah. thing, of a Paul McCartney song for this Paul McCartney tribute album back in 2014. And we've all heard it, I'm sure. Yeah. What was, what were your, what was your first impression, Steve? When you, I, when you I, that? I have to say, I did not like that song at all. It's... The song it, or, you mean well, his cover his, version? His cover version. It's not a yeah. song that I rate particularly highly, and I know I kind of annoy people when I say that. It, it's a very kind of sort of flat song. It, it kind of doesn't go anywhere. It kind of needs the Beatle treatment, I think, to lift it. And I, I don't think mm-hmm. Bob at that time had the voice to do it yeah it's, i mean i love that song but, but it's almost willfully the most atypical wrong choice dylan could have made if he was mm. going to cover McCartney. yeah i agree i mean i actually do love the song i think the beatles do a fabulous job maybe i can't tell the difference between um a song you know that isn't a top rate beatles song because they do such a good job with it but yeah um it's it's i think it's it's so perverse it's so bob this is but I do, I listened to it again recently and I, I got to like it better because I think one thing he does get, if you, if you can bear to go back to it, it's actually quite threatening. It's actually quite scary. He actually does. Now, I don't know if he's threatening the song itself, but um, I think there's something underneath it. You say you will love me, you know, yeah. to the end of time. Always thinking of me, you know. Whatever, however it goes, it's just he he applies that Dylan sort of um, menace. It's a it. threat, isn't it? Then we it's will remember yeah. things we said today. I hadn't thought about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, oh, I, I'm getting this now. You know, I I when I first heard it, I was a bit shocked and slightly repulsed by it because it, because musically it was so flat really yeah yeah but well, listen give it another listen i will i, I will it may revisit. be you um, know that sort of you know later dylan where he's always threatening to take a, a sword and chop off people's uh limbs yes it's that sort of yeah <laughs> think about it in, in that sort of terms you think oh it's it's a scary song okay but he could have done a very easy job on something like i've just seen a face couldn't he Yes, that would have been yeah. a natural fit. Yeah, that would have been a better fit. But yeah, yeah, no, I will definitely, I will definitely revisit it with that, uh, with that <laughs> in mind. Dylan covers are always, I think, problematic. Dylan is so distinctive that everything becomes a Dylan song. You know, that's my issue with Dylan thinking. Well, you know, could he cover a McCartney song? He, you know, one of those big ballads. That's not going to work. That's not. Mm. In the and early two thousands period when he did Brown Sugar and Lawyers Guns yeah. and Money and The End of the Innocence and something and he was very strange kind of choices there. Yeah, he so suddenly came out and sang Live and Let Die or something. You know that would be, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah. um, you know, or but I, I'm not. I'm not sure he's ever ever done a Lennon cover. I don't think so somebody will probably correct me on that but mm, i'd like to know that i don't I, so. I like ray charles's version of imagine that's that's a bit of a left field suggestion but uh no i can't think of one that dylan's done i can't do any podcast without mentioning that i was at the concert for george that's a kind of compulsory yeah. thing i have to mention mm-hmm. but i that was i was very disappointed that bob didn't turn off at that but then he did that version of something was he playing yes. in new york or yeah. east coast at that time and uh, i thought he he kind of croaked his way through that reasonably yeah. well 
at that night at the Albert Hall, were you expecting him to kind of maybe show? I just had it in the back of my mind that maybe, just maybe, because the yeah. thought of sort of seeing, you know, on, on stage at one point you had Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, Eric Clapton, Billy Preston, Danny Harrison, and you think that's that's the Beatles. You know? um, I mean, yeah, it's nuts, isn't it? It's, 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 um, when they're doing While My Guitar Journey Weeps and they've got basically everyone who played on that track playing the original instruments apart from the two who are dead. Yeah, that's quite special. That was quite special, and, and Gary Brooker, who who just passed oh, away, he was yeah. there, and I was I was watching the clip of him, and you suddenly see Steve Winwood is in the audience, just immediately behind Gary Brooker. Really? So it was like, sorry, that's okay, Steve. We we've enough people on the stage. We don't need you. <laughs> um, but I did hope that uh, Bob might make an appearance. But um, yeah, don't you think being a fan of 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 Bob or the Beatles or somebody anybody in that of that caliber, you you start fantasizing. Um, I mean, we're not fantasizing about saying having Bob on here. That will never happen. We don't actually really want it to happen. But I remember when I went to the uh, Paul McCartney thing at the Royal Festival Hall where he was launching his book, courtesy of you, Stephen, because you gave me a ticket because you couldn't make it. And I started fantasizing that um, Paul was going to whip out his guitar and (laughs) play Michelle or something. I, I just, I got it into my head that why not? I mean, we're all here. Yeah. But it was, that's not what it was for. You know, it was to launch the book, the lyric book. And uh, of course it didn't happen, but it became, in my head, I was willing it so strongly that I, I almost believed it was going to happen. I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. The first time, you just have to will it harder, Carrie. <laughs> yes, because I know it. The first time, the first time I saw Dylan in concert was in 1984 at Slane, which was this huge field in in Ireland. It was sort of 65,000 people. Beautiful sunny day, and um, I was thinking this would be a perfect occasion for Van Morrison to come on. And I think, oh, you know, I really hope Van Morrison comes on. And uh, for the encores, Van Morrison came on. So. I think you're just not trying hard enough, Gary. No, it can't happen. By the way, I've got a story from from that thing, which I haven't told you, which was just, uh, I was sitting up there, sort of up, up in the gods and, and uh, waiting, waiting, waiting for, uh, for it to start. And uh, it was at the kind of the height of, not the height of COVID, but it was, mm. it was during one of the little, little lulls, but I still had my mask on and probably 60% of the people had their masks on, uh, usually the older people. And so a couple came and sat beside me, two gorgeous looking, a a man and a woman couple without any masks, you know, in their twenties. And I, um, I got into my, uh, it was, it was over to one side. So there were only three of us in this little row over to one side. So I was a bit, bit grumpy, but Mm. I thought, oh, well, you know, that's just the way it is. Let's let it go. Let it go. And they started talking. And of course they were beside me and uh, it hadn't started yet. So he said, what are we doing here again? And she said, well, you know, he said he was so nice. I just had to come along and uh, started telling the story about how she worked as a receptionist in um, a studio in London. And uh, Paul had come in uh, before pre-COVID times and was doing a bit of recording there or had something to do there. And he was there for like three or four days. And the very first thing he'd do is come up to reception and just say, uh, yeah, you know, all right, uh, everything okay. And, And then he'd go and talk to... Just basically everybody who worked there, really, because they all knew Paul McCartney was coming in. And she told him this story about how, you know, he was so nice. I just had to come along and, you know, see him tonight. 
And I thought, wow, could that be further from a Bob Dylan story? Yeah. Yeah, you can't imagine Bob doing that <laughs> at all, you know. Um, <laughs> That's the huge – I mean, and I was also listening to both those Ed Sullivan uh, episodes of your podcast, uh, which were particularly good. And uh, and I was thinking the Beatles, it cemented their conquest of America. You You talk about how they were pretty much conquering America anyway, but people hadn't seen them on national television aside from a little, you know, Dick Clark yeah. thing. But – of course, when D- people don't make enough of this, when Dylan, who was the up and coming, hadn't conquered America, but when he was offered a slot on Ed Sullivan, and he was there, and he was there at the rehearsals, and he sang John Birch Paranoid Blues at the rehearsals, and he was told by the Sullivan people, you know what, we know we said you could sing that, but we really don't want you to sing that because it'll upset, you know, these mm-hmm. right wing crazies, and we don't want that to happen. And so Dylan said, okay, I'll just, I'll leave then. You know, I don't care. I'll leave your show. And he did. And he walked. And again, how Bob Dylan is that? I did not know that. I'd never, I'd you never didn't heard know that. that. No, I didn't know that. That he actually no, turned that down. Um, so that yeah, yeah, it's well documented. He he did the dress rehearsal. And uh, they said, uh, no, we don't want that song. You'd play one of your other songs. Uh, this is correct, isn't it, Luke? This I is, think so, yeah. And I think there's a yeah. performance just afterwards when he's when he sings it and he announces just before. Uh, he says, yeah. he says, I'm gonna do this song. And he goes, and there ain't nothing wrong with this song, doesn't he? Yeah, and everybody yeah, and yeah. everybody laughs. Yeah. That's a, that's not on Ed Sullivan. That's no. a, that's a concert that he did, you know, a few just weeks later. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's just, you know, again, that's Bob. You know, you can't teach stuff like that. That's that's you know. that's crazy. That's crazy. You kind of think that's that's absolutely the key to the Beatles success yeah even to this day people mm. you know that's the the start of their kind of ascendancy you imagine if they kind of said no no we we're, we're just going to walk we're not going to do this yeah but that would that you know that's the big difference and that's different animals, that's yeah. why you know john was so f- one of the reasons john was so f- kind of freaked out by by dylan i think i mean so. i don't, don't think he knew that particular thing but he he sensed that i think it is that 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 sort of authenticity or that integrity that Lennon felt always seemed to feel that he was stifled in some way or that he was being forced to be something he wasn't. And then Dylan coming out of the coffee houses and the left wing and, you know, that's what he craved. And um, just to go back to the roll on John mm. lyric, something, one of the reasons why I chose that was something I discovered quite recently that kind of feeds into that insecurity that Lennon has. So they met again in May 1965 at Dylan's hotel when he was in London. And Ginsberg was there. And um, Lennon, the atmosphere apparently was very, very sort of cold and very kind of frosty. And then Alan Ginsberg, as is his wont, sat in Lennon's lap to break the ice. (laughs) And um, so this was kind of, again, slightly. And he said to Lennon, what do you think of William Blake? And uh, you've heard of William Blake. And Lennon said, don't know who you're talking about. I've never heard of William Blake. Mm-hmm. And Cynthia was there and she said, Yo, you're such a liar. Of course you know who William Blake is. And then everybody laughs and, you know, the ice is broken and they have a great time and, and everybody gets on very well. And it only occurred to me that that last verse of Roll On John is tiger, tiger, burning bright. Yes. I pray the Lord my soul to keep in the forest of the night, cover him over and let him sleep. And I think, is Dylan referencing that 
introduction to Ginsburg where there was this terrible tension and that Lenin was making a, you know, pretending not to know who William Blake is because it's a, it's a very odd, that's the most famous line in English poetry, arguably, tiger, mm. tiger, burning bright. And you think, what does that mean? That's not, is he comparing Lenin to the tiger? Is what? Well, he is because the chorus is, you burn so bright. Yeah. But is uh, any- shine your lights, move it on, you burn so bright, roll on John. But the tiger in that poem is a kind yeah. of scary, you know, I can't remember the poem, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. that your fearful symmetry Shaped. and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, well, is that, so my theory is, I'm a great man for theory, is that um, that last stanza is a kind of little personal nod back to that meeting in 65. I, I think so. I think so. And that would have been about the same time. What's that interview with, um, with Lennon when he's publicising in his own right? And someone says to him, do you think you could have been a, a writer if you hadn't been a Beatle? And he, de- he says in sort of mock sheepish tones, well, I suppose I could have been a beat poet. Yes, yes. And there must be about that time. I'm not sure if it's before it, or after it, the Ginsburg meeting. It would. It, well, the Ginsburg was May 65. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's around that time. It's around that time. You know, and Lennon's always very explicit about the fact that Dylan changed his way of writing, you know, that changed his approach to what could be done in song. And um, the only example I could kind of get of a a reciprocal acknowledgement from Dylan was in 78. And Dylan is kind of saying, well, you know, Lennon is very poetic and he went as far as you could go. And some of the things that he was writing, you know, phrases that he turned, these they'll never be repeated. And I thought that's that's the only time I've heard Dylan or could find an example of Dylan sort of referencing Lennon's lyrics uh, in, in the way that Lennon talked about Dylan. But of course, we were talking earlier about, or were we, about a John Lennon Plastic Ono band? Um, I, or maybe we weren't, but I was thinking about it. And of course, that's the one where he he doesn't just deny, you know, he denies God and he denies the Beatles and he denies Zimmerman. Yeah. And I remember when I when I first heard that thinking, guys, Something particularly vicious about that. Well, he hated uh, the fact that he changed his name, didn't he? I think that's what he was really alluding to. John Ono um, Lennon, of course, who would never have changed yeah. his middle name or anything. <laughs> exactly. And I think I think that's the irony. And there's something quite, you know, it's this idea that, that he's he's sort of trying to say there's something phony mm. um, about Dylan. And it's it's that word phony is a word that kind of looms large in, well, it's in holding in, Caulfield and and, yeah. and you you know with, with with give me some truth yeah and 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 the kind of assassination and that mm. you know because he was a phone and and there is something sort of retrospectively chilling about that but you're right it's a very vicious he's not just denying him he's holding him up and saying well you're a fake you know he's kind of doubly fake and yet of all the things that anyone in the music business in the second half of the 20th century could have got from Bob Dylan is that identity changes all the time. Yeah. I mean, you know, (laughs) I don't think Lennon would have said that about Bowie, would he? No, I think that's exactly it. I think by the time you get to Bowie in 75, you know, Lennon's hanging out with Bowie and fame is is their co-write. Although you you sort of think at that time, I suspect it's Bowie doing Lennon a favour rather than the other way around. But yeah, I think you don't have that. You know, the Beatles changed, but they changed from 63 to 1969, 1970. And they're unrecognisable, but not in the way that Dylan changes, not in the way that Dylan has. Dylan is a character. You know, he's created that artifice around himself. You know, no one knows who Bob Dylan is. Maybe Bob 
Dylan doesn't know who Bob Dylan is. You know, that was something that Harrison would always say. You know, if you get Bob on his own, he's he's just a guy and you can get on with him. Whereas you imagine Dylan never takes that off, even in private. It's like Tom Waits. I can't imagine Tom Waits, you know, making a cup of tea or <laughs> washing the dishes or doing the hoovering. You know, he he's always in the shed making some weird thing. Um, What's he doing in there? Uh, yeah, and I think, I think of Dylan the same way, that he's yeah. always Bob Dylan. He's never not Bob Dylan. I'm, I'm just looking at the lyrics to um, just going back to Roll On John, which is something that I've, you know, I, I kind of shudder whenever I listen to it just because I hate the first, the first verse so much. But looking at this, I mean, it's quite extraordinary, this, this, um, this verse, I think, which is the third verse. Um, Sailing through the trade winds, bound for the south, rags on your back, just like any other slave. They tied your hands and they clamped your mouth. Wasn't no way out of that deep, dark cave. So it seems to me that he's saying when you were a beetle, it was as bad as being a slave. Yes. I mean, that's, whoa, (laughs) that's pretty... Shocking, it, it, and it, this is this is why I'm saying I I become fascinated by this song. It's not a song I I don't enjoy listening to the song, but I think on the page, if you start to break mm. that down and and the comparisons that, that he's making, and um, I think yeah, it it seems to be a reference to being in the Beatles and being restricted on what he could say, and you know, Liverpool is a was a the main centre for the slave trade in England, mm. Uh, mm. You, you know. So there are all of these sort of, hist- you know, some of it's very literal about the Liverpool docks and red light Hamburg streets. and mm-hmm. um, But yeah, I think there's a lot going on that you don't get when you listen to the record. No, I must say, looking through the, I won't quote them all, but looking through it now, aside from the, you know, kind of really not, I, I still... I'm not happy with all the references to come together and yeah. the various songs, but but within that, there is something much bigger going on. I think, yeah, yeah. and I, I think it is this idea of uh, of myth that this is this is he's not talking. I think about Lennon, his friend, because I don't, I'm not sure there was a friendship uh, mm, uh, that mm. you would describe, but I think he's talking about the myth of Lennon, what Lennon has become that sort of almost sanctification uh, of Lennon after his death. Whoa, I'm trying to figure out, we're, we're, just about, we're just about out of time, but this is probably maybe, well, it's Bob Dylan, we can end in a very downbeat way. But um, Downbeat about that, it's fascinating. Yeah, no, it's it great. is fascinating. Yeah. I mean, do you, you, going back to the fact that you, that you chose it out of all the, all the Dylan songs, uh, did you choose it because of the reference to the Beatles or... Oh, just it was an interesting way in, or what else might you have chosen if you hadn't chosen Why, that? Whenever you very kindly asked me to come on to the podcast, I thought I, I was able to narrow the lyrics down to maybe 20 or 30. <laughs> and, and I'll be perfectly honest, I chose this lyric yesterday. It was literally, uh, literally uh, as recent as that. And I think if I had another lyric to go for, it would be from Changing of the Guards, because that is probably my favorite song. I think it's the penultimate verse, and it says, uh, gentlemen, he said, I don't need your organization. I've shined your shoes. I've moved your mountains and marked your cards, but Eden is burning. Either get ready for elimination or else your hearts must have the courage for the changing of the guards. And it's back to that thing about there's such a threatening 
aspect to that. Whenever I was a very callow youth and um, very unhappy in my first employment, that was my resignation letter. I was just going to... <laughs> Um, I was just intending to uh, type that up, <laughs> sign it, and uh, leave it on the senior partner's desk. And, um, uh, so I commend that as anyone's. I'm much too old to resign now from anything, but uh, <laughs> I uh, commend that as a resignation letter. Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded on Zencaster. Engineered by Nev Brothers and produced by Robin Guys. Digital imaging by Finn Guys. Music is by Sam Head. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. I heard the sound of a thunder that roared out a warning. I heard the roar of a wave that could drown the whole world. I heard 100 drummers whose hands were blazing. I heard 10,000 whispering and nobody listening. I heard one person starve. I heard many people laughing. I heard the song of a poet who died in the gutter. I heard the sound of a clown who cried in the alley.